For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Ken Blanford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle. And Mr. Timothy O'Donnell is, I think he's stuck in a shopping mall. That that wouldn't surprise me. Um, getting stuck in a shopping mall this time of year is pretty easy to do. That's kind of horrific any time of year. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, particularly particularly around Christmas, getting yourself stuck in a, a shopping mall. Um, I try to avoid shopping malls like the plague. I, I'm very thankful that we live in the day and age of the internet, the day and age of Amazon, mm-hmm. where I can just sit in front of my computer, punch a button. And and have those uh, packages just magically show up at my doorstep. Yeah, and when you're doing that, make sure you, you go to smile.amazon.com and register so that uh, you're contributing to Catholic Radio Indy as part of your purchases. doesn't cost you anything at all, but it benefits the station. So now that we've got that little promo in here... What are we talking about today? Well, I think we're going to be talking a little bit, a little bit about the internet. Um, and and the reason why I say a little bit about the internet is because we're going to be going back and talking about what the internet, I don't want to say has destroyed, but in some ways, uh, our whole aesthetic approach to the world, our, our whole approach to the way we see things, we sense things, we experience things, um, over the years has been transformed. And one of the, I think one of the things we're aware of here at the Catholic Cave, and one of the things we're trying to bring back to life for the listeners, is this idea that we are part of a 2,000 year tradition of thought. And so our modern ways of thinking aren't necessarily the way the church has always approached things. It's not always the way that the church has always thought about things. And so we want to try to recapture a little bit of um, what uh, what life was like um, aesthetically, how, how, how people saw the world, how people thought about the world, how people engaged the world aesthetically before the internet, and really, honestly, before books, before the printing press. Um, how have those things changed a little bit? And so um, I'm not going to be able to do this alone. If, if Tim were here, I'm not even sure we'd be able to do it together. So we're going to bring in an expert, um, as we often do here on the Catholic Cave. Um, we're going to take a break here in a little bit. And when we come back, we are going to talk to... Um, Associate Professor of History from the University of Chicago, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown. And Professor Brown is, a, is she is a, a professor of history, but she's a medievalist. Her specialty really is medieval aesthetics, um, understanding the medieval mind, how um, medieval people approach the world differently, how they felt the world differently, how they thought about the world differently because they sensed it differently. And a lot of that was because the mediums of communication were different and it affected everything. It affected from how they lived their daily life according to a liturgical cycle, all the way down to how they participated in the liturgy and how they, um, 
I, I guess, sort of imbibed the presence of Christ there at the Mass in a way that might be slightly different and, and a little bit foreign to us. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to enter into a slightly different world. We're going to enter into the world of medieval monasticism with the guide and help of um, a medieval scholar, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown from the University of Chicago. So um, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on The Catholic Cave. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Hi, Kent Blanford here, your production manager at Catholic Radio Indy. Just taking this opportunity to wish you and your family a very blessed Christmas and a happy, healthy, and joy-filled new year. May God bless us, everyone. Hi, this is Patty Zunica, Operations Director here at Catholic Radio Indy. A blessing of my job is that I get to listen to Catholic Radio Indy while I work. I'm also humbled when processing all the donations that come into the station. Honestly, I'm overwhelmed by the generosity of listeners like you. Thank you very much. On behalf of my husband, Tom, my family, and myself, I would like to wish you and your family the very best this Christmas season. May the joy you experience as we celebrate the birth of our Savior stay with you throughout the new year. So, the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome. Catholic Radio Indy. And welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with our producer, Kent Blanford. And we have as our guest today um, an associate professor of history from the University of Chicago, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And we're going to be talking a little bit today about aesthetics. And that, you know, that's a, a kind of a branch of philosophy that a lot of people don't think of when they think about Catholic philosophy. Usually when we think of Catholic philosophy, we're thinking of ethics. We're thinking maybe a little bit about metaphysics. We're thinking about the writings of St. Thomas. Um, but we're usually not thinking about aesthetics. So, um, Professor Fulton Brown, why don't you, you start us off a little bit by talking, what exactly would you say is aesthetics? Well, I mean, properly the understanding of beauty, the, the quest for beauty, the, 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 the appreciation that beauty is part of our um, repertoire for understanding God. And I, I mean, I, what's funny is it's hard to, it's hard to talk about a theory of medieval aesthetics because they didn't really. <laughs> um, and as I understand um, from some of my reading, Thomas doesn't go there as significantly as, as maybe we'd like, which is interesting because what I work on in my own scholarship is very much the monastic tradition. And I think a lot of what we would now think of as, you know, theories of aesthetics end up there in meditations on scripture, on, you know, the appreciation of the liturgy. Um, in my own work, I'm very interested in what I, I started, you know, calling the, the study of the Christian imagination. And if, if you look in the monastic tradition, that's where you're going to find it much more than in the scholastic discussions on truth. So to a certain extent, what I'd like to do is let's, let's start talking about 
generally, the monastic tradition and what we can learn from it, that we don't get through the more quaestiones, um, rigorous, logical understanding of, of God. Right, and, and as you said, you know, the, the medievals didn't have this, I think, uh, maybe structured way of, of kind of looking at the, the realm of philosophy a little bit. So aesthetics was, was much more mixed, I think, into, um, into to kind of what other things they were looking at. Um, so when you look at the idea of, of the true, the good, the beautiful, the, uh, the, the, the transcendentals, beauty is one that we often don't think of. We don't look at it as much. How does beauty really fit into, I guess, that, that contemplation of truth sort of at the, at the highest level? Well, I, I say, I mean, in, in Christian experience through the liturgy, right, that we are um, called as Christians to sing with the angels, I mean, in, in medieval um, liturgical practice, the psalms are at the very center of their worship, and the psalms are all about describing the beauty of the Lord, right? And so I think, in at least in medieval practice, you get aesthetics much more through practice, that the, the monastic tradition is training in the, the performance of the psalms. Um, when you're singing the psalms and, and meditating on their imagery, you're, you're simply infused constantly with, the descriptions of the beauties of creation, the descriptions of the, the beauty of, of, of the Lord, the King of Glory, and maybe that's what it is. We, we've, we've gotten too much, uh, excuse me, I have beautiful chimes in the background where I'm sitting, <laughs> you'll get them there on the quarter of every hour, which I suppose is very monastic in the sense of we're, you know, honoring time and we're honoring our experience in time by saying the hours. Okay, the chimes have stopped. Um, that we... <laughs> That instead of theorizing about beauty, we should we are invited to participate in it, right? And you know, if you think about the psalms that we say at lauds or that we sing at lauds, my, my favorite is one forty eight, where you're calling on all of the creatures to to bless the Lord, and that that experience of blessing, that experience of of wanting to participate in the joy of the of the creatures at their Creator, that to me is where I find all of our discussion of beauty um, in the in the medieval tradition. Likewise, in, in very specific texts, for example, the Song of Songs, and if you're, you know, want to sort of dive into deep, deep Rachel Fulton Brown <laughs> experience. Oh, let's go um, as deep as we can. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> my my first book, um, from Judgment to Passion, was on the liturgical use of the Song of Songs in praise of Our Lady, and you know it's that. I mean, most Catholics will be familiar with some of those texts as you know used in our, the liturgy for for praising Mary. But you know the most the most familiar verse will be "Tota pulchra est," right? You are all beautiful. Um, we we think about that as we did last week when we're um, celebrating the feast of the Immaculate Conception. You know, what does it mean for her to be all beautiful with no stain? Um, that the Song of Songs itself is is uh, among other things a dialogue between a bride and the bridegroom both of whom are describing each other's beauty. And in the medieval tradition, that, that text is used to, to imagine Christ's conversation with Mary, um, very particularly in certain monastic um, commentaries that I talk about in From Judgment to Passion, where you know, the, the, the whole point is to experience Mary and Christ's love for each other through the descriptions of the bride and the bridegroom's um, understanding of each other's beauty. So it, it's all there. It's just, it's interesting that it's, because 
in the monastic tradition and not theorizing it in the way that we've come to expect philosophy to do so, we simply miss it. Yeah, you, you, you've mentioned a couple of times that, that we've moved in some ways from, from theorizing to participating. And, and when you were talking about the literature, you are talking about our, our participation in the literature, our participation in the Psalms. It feels like that's something that we've kind of lost over the ages as we moved into the the age of reason from from medieval times into the modern age. I think we've become a lot more intellectual and we've kind of intellectualized the faith. What are we missing and what are we losing to a certain extent by moving away from this sort of participation in beauty that that you were describing as as the liturgy? Well, so in order to make some sense of this. I've been reading a lot of Marshall McLuhan recently, <laughs> who I, I don't know where he fits in the in the, the, the um, constellations of good and bad characters right now, but he was, <laughs> one, he was Catholic, right, and, and he was very concerned around Vatican II with, you know, certain effects that he, he felt people weren't appreciating significantly. He was, he was a student of the media, right, and, and he was very interested in the way in which printing obscure certain kinds of experience which manuscript culture brought out, right? And when you're talking about our, our becoming so much more intellectual and so much more um, sort of rational, in his understanding that was because of the printing press, right? That, And in my own understanding of, of the ways in which we um, pray, I, my second book, I'm going to take you on a tour of Rachel Fulton Brown this way, <laughs> um, <laughs> In, in my second book, Marrying the Art of Prayer, um, it's on the hours of the Virgin and the, the, the way in which medieval Christians prayed to Mary. And in that book, I, I very specifically say, imagine yourself as a medieval Christian. What Would, would you like to learn to pray like a medieval Christian? And um, to do so, I, give, I take you on a tour of, of the Marian hours, right, through the psalms and the antiphones and, and the lessons that were used to, t- to talk about her. Um, and what I do is say, you know, imagine yourself saying these hours, saying the, the psalms and the antiphones as if you were sort of inside the practice. Well, this was not received with great joy necessarily by my colleagues in the academy. Um, and I, McLuhan is helping me understand why. It's like I invited you inside the practice, which in his description, it's very much a, man, a manuscript practice if you realize that Manuscripts have a different kind of quality of um, participation than printing. Printing sets you outside the text, right? And you, 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 you know, you get a printed book and you read it through and you think about yourself distanced from the the author or the the printer, right? It's it, in McLuhan's understanding is this the mechanical reproduction made the uh, a sort of uh, abstraction very very possible. In the manuscript world, which is where the medieval hours of the Virgin developed, you have your own handwritten copy of the book. Every single version of the hours that we have, you know, prior to printing is somewhat different, right? People had their own books copied by the bookmakers. Um, they'd add their own prayers. There's a, there's a very, what McLuhan talked about is this mosaic um, understanding that you are sort of constantly experiencing the pattern of the text and, and the, the imagery and so forth. I realized in retrospect that's what I was trying to show in Mary in the Art of Prayer, what it was like to be inside that mosaic of experience. And if you read that book, which I hope people will try, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to read for you in the way in which 
um, medieval Christians would understand the, all this repertoire of imagery and such. It's very difficult for modern readers used to print to access. We're talking with uh, P- Professor Rachel Fulton Brown of the University of Chicago. We're talking a little bit about aesthetics, but mostly we're talking about sort of the the, the medieval culture of of uh, I guess contemplation and how that's a how that was seen as a participation in beauty. And um, as you, as you were just explaining, that participation with the text, um, you know, the the ability to really make a text part of yourself and, and part of you to where I guess we, when we read scripture, we read it, right? Um, you know, we, we, we look at it, we, we look at the words, we, we maybe say the words aloud, but, but at the, at the most we're, we're reading it. What you were just describing is much more of a, almost a performing of a text and a, a participation in the text on a, not only personal level, but on a little bit more of an artistic level. Can you talk a little bit more, I guess, about sort of the attitude of a medieval monk or, 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 you know, really any medieval person that was, was praying these hours. Certainly, and uh, if listeners may be familiar with the idea of Lexio Divina, um, that is the, what the, the, the term that we use to describe what this monastic practice was like. Um, it, it was a form of I mean, very slow reading. It's, obviously, if you're, if you're saying the Psalms out loud, you're saying these texts out loud, it's, it's slower than when you just can skim your eye over the over the text, so you have to slow it down. It's very physical, um, that when you are reading in the way that men- medieval monks would read, you have to use your whole body, right? It's, it's, you have to, the way Benedict describes it in his office is, you know, your mind needs to be in harmony with your voice, but your voice is coming from your lungs, right? It's coming from your breath. And, I mean, even as you and I are talking here, we have to use more of our body than we would if we were simply reading a reading a, an article, say, online or something. Um, the way the, the monks describe this practice is is chewing over the text, right? It's a rumination, and you realize if you're if you're using your entire physical self to chew over the words, to speak them, to breathe them out, to um, the, the experience is much more than just in your mind. It's it's your body giving you access to all of that. Um, I mean, we keep talking about experience, participation, imagery, right? It, you can only you can only learn it by doing, and, and that was one of the things that I wanted to explore in Mary in the Art of Prayer. How do we learn to do this practice again? How do you get yourself to you know sort of stand and sing in the way that monks and nuns would would do it? And so I say the the the, the academics who've read my book tended to not get it, and <laughs> they said, well. She's making this up, right? And I'm, I'm showing you, no, I actually, you know, explored all of the images that they used to talk about Our Lady, like the City of God, the mountain, the trees. The trees especially come from Ecclesiasticus, where wisdom is describing herself, right? And the academics who read my book, they, they have this, this sense of, well, this isn't history, right? You're not, you're not describing for us why. And I'm like, I am actually showing you the why, but you have to be willing to say these words out loud, say them in the, the way that the imagery starts becoming alive to you. Monks and other modern religious who do these hours read my book and say, oh yes, that's, that's what we've experienced. <laughs> so I'm reassured, right? But it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of problem because there's an inside and an outside, and we as modern readers, we, we've sort of sat on the outside of this practice, I think, for too long, right? It's, it's time to step into the light. 
and I have more McLuhan-esque versions of why that, that imagery is meaningful, but to step into it and, and look along the text to the imagery that it's showing us rather than sitting outside and trying to, you know, sort of organize it intellectually. Yeah, it's a, a phrase we've kind of heard growing up to a certain extent, some of us have, you know, that, that we believe as we pray. But I don't think it's something we've really taken to heart. And a lot of us, I think, don't realize to the extent that our, our beliefs, our, our participation, and to a certain extent, our, our, our Catholicism to a good extent, really is that participation in the liturgy. And it's not just a, a set of beliefs. It, it very much is, is formed by the way we pray. And as you were saying, you know, our, our bodily, you know, the kind of our, 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 our bodily I don't know, stature the, as we're praying, our voice, and, and all of that, that sort of affects our imagination, and then our imagination then goes on to, uh, to affect our, our contemplation and our ability to contemplate God. Um, how much of a difference, I guess, in the medieval conception of the liturgy was there in the idea that the whole point of the liturgy was more along the lines of participating with the act that was going on and, and therefore using our imagination, using our, our whole body, etc., to be part of the liturgy versus just kind of contemplating what the priest was doing in front of us. You see, that's what's so interesting. Uh, the, the, the books of hours that I talk about in Mary and the Art of Prayer, right, they are, it, most people are familiar with books of hours because they have pictures that are, show up on Christmas cards, right? And one of the things that the Reformers in the 16th century complained about was that people would be at Mass reading their little, you know, their own private prayer books, right? They're not participating in the communal liturgy. And pr- Protestant worship becomes... particularly in England, for example, with the Book of Common Prayer, right? Everybody has to be saying the same text at the same time together in the, you know, in the the worship. What's interesting about medieval worship, it was was incredibly personalized, even as they're participating in the the sacrifice, right? And I'm a relatively new Catholic in, like, my own life terms that I was received um, just four years ago into the Church, so I come with a, a, a kind of Protestant background of, you know, but why aren't we doing more devotion? You know, why are we doing more congregational singing? Where are all the hymns? And I, I finally got into the proper that Latin masses, right, and um, understand very much why it's so important that we are there witnessing the sacrifice that the priest is making for us. But you're still participating, and particularly, um, you know, if you if you have your own. Um, books of hours or your prayers that you're saying, you are offering prayers along with the priest that are very much also a part of the offering. But in the, in the medieval practice, you'd be, this is how saying the rosary or how, you know, reading the hours of the Virgin would come into it. Medieval Christians were incredibly, in, you know, participatory, just not in the way printing made possible when everybody had the same book and you could all be reading out of it. So I think, you know, some of it is to, to understand different forms of participation rather than privileging only the everybody has to sing from the same hymnal, which I also like, right? <laughs> so I think there, there's a, a, a variety of practices that we need to watch out for our own media prejudices, right? If you're not, you know, literate and reading the exact same text as everyone, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not also participating. And, and our participation can take place on a number of different levels. 
You're listening to The Catholic Cave here on Catholic Radio, and uh, this is Mark Tuttle. I'm in studio with Kent Blanford, and we are talking with uh, Professor Rachel Fulton-Brown of the University of Chicago. We're talking about um, medieval practices. We're talking about the medieval practice of prayer, and you've, you've kind of mentioned a couple of times that the tradition that arose around texts is is different a little bit foreign to us from our familiarity with with printed books and and printed material that um for for a medieval person the the relationship with the text was different how the the text was approached was different how it was performed was different and we've been talking about how that sort of affected the way people participated in mass and at the liturgy but it went beyond that. It it went to I think how people just participated um, with the the stories and the texts that they encountered outside of liturgical practice as well. Is that is that correct? That's correct. And this is where McLuhan's idea of a mosaic is is becoming really helpful to me because it he there's my chimes again. Um, he was um, able to. Well, he spent a lot of time studying medieval educational practice, right? The trivium and um, the inter- interconnection between grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And what we're talking about now is, is both grammatical and rhetorical in the sense of, I mean, rhetoric is about beautiful speech, right? You persuade through great ornament and, and um, I'm sorry about the choice. <laughs> um, you you um, need to be able to name things accurately in, in grammatical terms. Uh, there we go. Um, and one of the things that happens when you pray the, the, the psalms, the liturgy, the way in which the monks did, is you start seeing connections and resonances everywhere, right? And it, it's interesting, how, do we, how would we educate someone into being able to experience um, the Mass or the, the office in the way medieval Christians did? Well, the only way to do it is, I think, you know, you have to be in it, you have to be hearing these images, you have to have this experience of, oh, when we name Mary as the city of God or as the, the um, one of the trees that are listed in Ecclesiasticus, you start seeing all of those references in all of the other texts that you've also been saying out loud, right? It's, it's a very, um, well, what, what's interesting, there's, a, there's hope for us, right? Because we are no longer in the world of printing. <laughs> you may you may think we are because we have printed you know missiles at, at, at mass and so forth, but you and I right now are proving that we're actually already in a different mode. We're we're talking right. This is radio. You're hearing us, our our voices when we're speaking. That the next thing McLuhan understood was in 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 our modern moment we're actually living in the light. Right, we are living in an electric world, which is much more oral. Obviously, you and I can can speak to this, um, and. I mean, even now with the Internet, I, I, he died in 1980, so I have no idea what he would, whether he would feel as prophetic as I feel when I'm reading his text. Understand that all of the ways in which the radio, television, Fulton Sheen used that a lot, right? Um, the Internet have enabled us to be actually more absorbed into the associations and references and correspondences in ways that printing didn't make possible, right? So, weirdly enough... We now are closer to a medieval understanding, particularly since people don't read as much, right? They, in fact, listen. This is great, right? Right now, here we are on the radio talking about the way to participate. You're already doing it. And um, one of the ways that I've been trying to do it is use the, 
use the, inter- the, the possibilities the Internet gives us for this kind of conversation, for this kind of experience. And I, I think I mentioned as we were preparing for this discussion that there, a group of friends and I have been writing poetry, what, which, which we understand to be very much in a medieval mode, that we are trying to retrieve the way in which this kind of association and imagery and layers of meaning would be activated through um, actual you know, poetic speech. And, and that's the other thing that I think we've lost. Modernity lost poetry. And, you know, great poets like T.S. Eliot and such did, went some way to retrieving it, but we don't have it yet back in, in our, our full per- appreciation. One, because modern poets sort of gave up on the oral, weirdly, and that's complicated. But also, I think, because Christians didn't realize how much the poetic was necessary to our understanding of the Incarnation. Yeah, you know, the uh, the, the spoken word of, of poetry, you're, you're exactly right. That, that's that been lost. And uh, as, as I, I, you know, I, I teach um, a series of classics for, for high schoolers, and we start every lesson with a poem, and I'm always trying to have them read it aloud. And, um, you know, their ability to actually... To, to read a poem aloud, it, it varies greatly from, um, from student to student. But then as we discuss the poem, they, they're able to clue in, I think, better than I would have been in high school on the, the common images. They're able to, to kind of see with their imagination the commonalities from one poem to the next at a level that I wasn't able to. And I hadn't really connected that to... I guess sort of a change of medium that they're used to living in. You know, they're used to living in a world of, of memes on the internet of, um, you know, passing around images and passing around pictures and, and things like that. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying that, that we're living in a world that that's moving a little bit back more towards this sort of, I guess, correspondence and, and discussion and communication really in terms of, of images, memes and, and the poetic. Exactly. That's exactly it. And think about it. This is, this is so interesting because the 16th century, because the new tech is printing, right? And they get all anxious about, oh, you know, people didn't, um, Luther says this, and I can get kind of nasty if I talk about Luther, but <laughs> the audience is okay with that. You know, he says uh, in, on Christian Liberty, talks about how the, those, the, the way in which those preachers were telling the gospel stories wasn't right, right? We need to sit down and read the text. And you realize that's a, that's a, that's a technological um, medium claim, right? We need to be reading the book the way I translated it. He goes on and translates it into German and such. Medieval Christians knew the Gospels, but they didn't know them in that printed way, right? They, they knew them to be the stories that the preacher told them liturgically throughout the course of the year, right? You, you will know all of the texts of the Gospels if you actually follow the liturgical calendar, because you will be experiencing the feast days and hear the stories as we, you know, on, you know, we, we remember them. So the gospel in liturgical terms is always today, right? Today we are celebrating um, this event. Today we are hearing this story and living it ourselves. Um, it, it's very participatory that way. And then we have the, the trope that, you know, medieval art was um, the books for the illiterate, right? If you have the great cycles of imagery that you have in the cathedrals or in the parish churches, in the parish churches they would often be paintings, right? Um, we, we've lost a lot of those because they were whitewashed over, but medieval churches would have pictures all over their walls. And you would see the stories in much the same way that the, 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 the kids now on the Internet 
see repertoires of images, right? Memes are a medieval um, mode. It, it, it's, it's exactly, you'd have a picture with, a, uh, you know, a, a, a caption maybe, maybe, you know, you think about, I used to be thinking about them as comic books, right? You have a comic book, you have a picture and a text, and I've done some meditations on my blog about the way in which comic books are also a, an incarnational form, right? You have to have the visual and the verbal together in this um, uh, genre, and it, it, it's kind of difficult for people who are used to books, right, to understand, well, but if you have the picture there, doesn't that take away all your imagination? No, you have to do a lot of interesting work to be able to make those pictures come to life as well and then be able to see the interior of people's thinking because of the speech bubbles and so forth. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> but but what one of the things I'm trying to, to, to help people appreciate in my teaching and my scholarship is these different media actually give us access to the incarnation in ways that if you're just focused on the printed text, we won't, act, we won't have access to. And it's interesting that, um, you know, the printed version poo-poos both the medieval practice and these new modern media, the, the Internet, the social media, the memes, the comic books, and so forth. We're, we're talking with Associate Professor of uh, History from the University of Chicago, uh, Professor Rachel Fulton-Brown, and we're, we're talking about sort of the, I guess, the medieval mentality around texts, um, the use of, of medieval imagination in the liturgy, and a lot of the other things, and you know, you've, you've obviously done a huge amount of work thinking through um, kind of what we've lost to a certain extent of we, as we've moved into modernity, but you've also done a lot of work trying to, I guess, bring the modern world back to, to some of, of this sort of um, medieval mentality. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects you're working on, some of the things you're doing, I guess, sort of outside or in conjunction with, with your academic career to try to recapture the medieval mentality for, uh, for the modern world. Well, one of the things I've done for a long time in my teaching um, is give my students assignments that are more, you'd say, imaginative or creative. But I have a very you know, historical, rational, logical reason for doing them. When people are writing stories about the past, they actually research the details better. <laughs> so I've, I've had students for a long time do historical fiction projects as research exercises. But then I've also been teaching for many years now, of course, on um, Tolkien, on the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's creative process. I process. absolutely love Tolkien. My my eight year old, <laughs> I was I was thrilled by this. My eight year old decided on her own, very little prompting from us, that she wanted to read The Hobbit, and and she actually read it all the way through. I was I was so impressed. You know, so um, she's picking it up and she's starting to get sort of the 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 Tolkien books as part of her own personal repertoire. Well, and, and that is brilliant, because that will be the way that she gets the imagery in the stories. And I've done a, I mean, when I teach my Tolkien course, one of the things, I, the major theme is subcreation, right? That you are invited into his stories, and he did that purposely, right? He understood that, or he hoped what he was trying to do was create a repertoire of legends and stories that other minds and hands, he says, would be encouraged to subcreate within, right? That, that you know, that they would, and we've seen that it works, right? The, the huge industry of, I mean, the movies and the art and the music and um, fan fiction and storytelling, Tolkien did what he hoped to do, which was create a world in which 
create an imaginative world fairy in which other people would be drawn to subcreate, which is exactly the Christian invitation, right? It's God invites us as artists to participate in his creation. We are made in the image and likeness of a maker, fundamentally, right? It's like the first thing that we learn from Genesis is, you know, God created. <laughs> and, and, and we are made in his image and likeness, and Tolkien says this, right? We, are ma- we make still in the image in which we are, which we are made, um, and that, I mean, it's, so again, it's like we've been talking about aesthetics generally in this conversation. If we are not participating in that creativity, we are not participating in the very, you know, we're not just made rational, we're made imaginative as well. And both our imagination and our reason are necessary to fulfill that that um, purpose for which, which we are made. I, I love what you're so, talking about, sub-creation with that. Um, you know, my... Uh, my daughters refer to that as fan fiction. And uh, I think you are the first person I've talked to that is a genuine Tolkien fan that does not think Tolkien would be rolling over his gra- in his grave with, with what um, Peter Jackson did with, with his films um, to, to recreate it. But what, what you're saying is that, uh, that that whole idea of taking somebody's artistry and making it your own and and kind of recreating it and subcreating and and creating fan fiction or other genres of art you know moving moving from something that that's written as a novel and moving that into a, a comic book or a movie or some other or genre that's actually a form of participating in the art and making it your own and and kind of working with the prior author to kind of continue his work and in, in his legacy well, I do have ideas about Peter Jackson's movies, but you're right. right? <laughs> <laughs> that that it's um, and that's what God invites us to do, right? And I so in my teaching with Tolkien, I always have them do a final project, and some I can I say your scholarship is creative as well. So they can do either a scholarly project or they can do some kind of subcreation. And I've had wonderful projects over the years: plays and rock operas and cookbooks and you know, lots and lots of stories and poems and so forth. And, you know, I realized that I was actually always wanting to be participating <laughs> in that way, too, and, and that I needed to, in order to develop my own, I mean, there's an intellectual project here, too, but I could not show you what I was trying to recapture, revive, retrieve from the medieval without, in fact, participating in it myself. And so um, th- this last year I was on leave, and I was, you know, saying, okay, I need to learn to write iambic pentameter. <laughs> um, one, because most English poetry is written in iambic pentameter, but also it's the, it's the, it's the meter for storytelling, right? And, um, you know, Tolkien's Mythopoeia, which he wrote for Lewis to explain to him the po- po- point of myth, is written in iambic pentameter. If you need to, you need to feel the rhythms of our language, English, um, you need to learn to write in the the meter that most of our great literature was composed in, from Chaucer to Shakespeare to Milton. It, you know that five beat line is like in our bones, right? And um, I assembled, but I also went, wasn't doing it on my own. I was writing with a community, which is more like a monastic practice too. I think that you are writing for an audience you know, of each other, but also that there needs to be a, a sense of this as a communal project. I, I think that was very important for me. Um, we did, t- we've done two books now. One was a satire for adults 
modeled on Alexander Pope's Dunciad, which is less Christmassy than, than the other one I want to tell you about. <laughs> um, but, but then we, we wanted to write a poem for children which would show the truth of the Incarnation in a way that they could actually start to intuit, I guess, by way of the pictures and the story and the imagery. And this one is one we've, we've just published it through my, my own publishing house. I had to start my own publishing house because, you know, academia doesn't know where to put me yet. Um, uh, the, the publishing house is called the Dragon Common Room Books. It's Dragon Common Room Books. And our, our book that we've just published is called Aurora Borealis. Um, it, got, it has bears in it. <laughs> it's, it's also um, a, a meditation on the search for the light. So the Borealis is a pun on Borealis. The bears are in the North Pole, and they, um, you know, are looking at the northern lights. And a friend of theirs, this albatross, comes and says, there's lights down south, too. And they sing, and the bears are encouraged to go search for the southern light. Um, and on the, on the way, they meet a panda, and they're pursued by this black fin, which we don't know what is for a while. They meet some penguins, um, fancy, you know, and some seals. It's... it's <laughs> It's hard to like summarize, except it's a grail quest with animals, um, and I've, I've given a lecture on it in full, where we sh- I show that it's a it's a very it's like the Divine Comedy for children, <laughs> because it's, it's, it it really is because it's working on all four levels of scripture that Dante says his own poem was that there's a story there, there's the history that this adventure with the animals, um, there's an allegory which you'll find the light is is very much a Christian. Christ allegory. Um, there's a moral because the bears encounter some seals who are being mean to the panda, and they have to learn to deal with the the, the challenges of virtue. Um, and then there's the anagogy, which is being lifted up in your um, meditation on the, the symbolism to hopefully a contemplation of the meaning of of the light. Uh, the best I can say is you need to read it to in order to get the point of it. But it has pictures, so it's also you know easy to show people. And and in that sense. I hope that we've created, by way of this poem, something of a demonstration of what it's like to be inside the story in a medieval um, experience, but in a way that modern readers can actually access it. And, and this sounds like all great um, children's literature, in that adults are probably going to get as much, if not more, out of the story, um, both enjoyment-wise and and um, you know content-wise. As, as as the children were, and I also love the fact that it, it it's a Christmas story that revolves around polar bears, and so that brings back <laughs> that brings back to my mind um, Tolkien's uh, you know, letters from Father Christmas. That that's been a, a great joy in our household of uh, kind of reading those with my younger daughters each each Christmas. But uh, good old PB, I guess, is still alive and well, and that's wonderful to hear. And if you know the Father Christmas stories, and there's. Um I think it's 1934. One of the pictures of PB is looking at the Aurora Borealis, right? That that gorgeous. Um, sun, it's like a rainbow. Of I know the light. picture. Yes, I can. I right? can picture it in my mind. I know the picture you're speaking of. And now we have just had the moment of that's the kind of connections that people make, right? It's like I see the polar bear. It's there in the Coca-Cola images, you know, Coca-Cola's for Santa Claus. But maybe we really want a different kind of understanding of what the polar bear is. We have the polar bear in Tolkien stories. In the community that we wrote this for, there's also bears. 
I, in my blogging, am a polar bear because I'm fencing bear at prayer, and the toy that I used as my avatar is white, so she's the translucent bear, so the polar bear. That's what we're, That's the kind of participation in beauty that I want people to realize is our tradition. And and there's an evangelical component to that as you were you were just speaking. You know, you're you're talking a little bit about sort of transforming some of the images transforming the 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 aesthetic ideas that are out there through our participation with them as as Christians. And in in our current culture um that is so important that that ability to take you know, we, we live in, we live in, some people have called it a post-Christian world. I think it's more of a neo-pagan world myself. Um, and so we have these images that are out there that I, I think the natural response for Christianity is to withdraw from that culture, withdraw away from a lot of what we're seeing. And aesthetics really gives us a way to, to sort of re-Christianize and reclaim that as part of our own tradition. Christ entered into our world and got completely messy and dirty <laughs> in doing so, right? This is the point of the incarnation, right? We we have this I mean, we want to, you know, worship our Lord and he's there enthroned on the rainbow throne in in you know in, in heaven and in the in the Holy of Holies. But he also reclaimed the alphabet. And this is another of the things that McLuhan was very powerfully insightful about that the alphabet itself was an instrument of, of militarization and commercialization. That's what it is, <laughs> right? The Phoenicians, you know, invent the alphabet and it becomes part of the commercial empire, and it's also the way in which those empires spread. Um, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He transforms the media in which he, he participates, and that's what we need to do as Christians, not run away from the media and say, Oh, you know, this is all this is all you know polluted and poisonous. We have to, and this is what my Telegram dragons have done with our story. Right? We wrote it on Telegram, which is a social media app, which is a very good one for like chats and conversation and such. But we see ourselves as participating in the incarnation in the sense of we have to become just as much a part of this world storytelling as Jesus did when he entered into the Roman Empire and and you know told his story in a, in, a, in a version that became, you know, transmitted in the alphabet. That alphabet was not a, a, um, a Christian form, right? The, the Greek alphabet, the Roman alphabet, Latin that we use in the Latin Mass, that was the, 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 the um, language of the empire. And it, it, it's, you know, what Christianity does is take the world in its materiality, in its fallenness, and reclaim it for God. Well, we've been having a, a great discussion with uh, Professor uh, Rachel Fulton-Brown here on the Catholic Cave. And uh, before we let you go, Professor, why don't you tell us a little bit about where people can go to find Aurora Borealis, the, the, the great book you were telling us about, or, some, or be able to, to kind of follow you and, and continue to, to follow you as, uh, as you uh, continue on in your work. So for Aurora Borealis, um, go to dragoncommonroom.com. Um, and there we have links to all the different um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Booktopia places that you can buy the book. Um, you can also find me that way there if you look at the About page and there's a Meet the Professor, and I have links for all of my other places that you can find me um, through that site. So if you go to dragoncommonroom.com, you can find Aurora Borealis. There's bonuses. There's a little trailer where we show you some of the pictures, and I and there's a video 
in story time on dragoncommonroom.com where I read Act One, so you can you can get a taste of the story there. Well, that's that, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for uh, for for being with us. We're we're coming up on a break, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on the Catholic Cave. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Season's greetings. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. This is Timothy O'Donnell, co-host of the Catholic Cave, wishing all of our listeners a blessed and holy season with friends, family. Let's remember that our Lord came to us in the flesh, in all humility and in poverty. Let us embrace our Lord and his model this holiday season by being generous and charitable to all. God bless you. Hi, I'm Patty Cochran. Are you a non-Catholic who listens to Catholic Radio? Would you like to find out more about how to join the Catholic Church? There's a program called RCIA that can introduce you to the Catholic faith, and it's available at your local parish. You don't have to make a commitment to participate in the program. Just try it out. I did, and it was one of the best steps I've ever made. Contact your local parish office for more information and start your journey home. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. And welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Kent Blanford. And we've been talking today. Well, we've been talking about a lot of things, Kent. <laughs> we've been talking about aesthetics mainly. But we've we've been talking a little bit more about the differences between the medieval mind, um, medieval practice, and modern practice. And how our, our modes of communication, how the medium that we use... Um, affects how we even pray, how we approach God, how we approach the liturgy. So we just got done with a, a fantastic interview with uh, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown of, uh, of University of Chicago, who is a, uh, she is a, a, a medievalist, true and true, uh, a professor of history, but uh, concentrating obviously on, on medieval um, texts and sort of the, the, the medieval mind. And, um, you know, as... As I'm uh, reflecting back on our interview, I'm thinking about how perfectly timely this is as we enter into the season of Christmas. You know, we, we just got done with Gaudate Sunday. We're, we're moving into, I, I guess, the, the serious contemplation of the incarnation of Christ. And as we move forward, people are going to be setting up their, their Advent, um, you know, their nativity scenes there at their houses. They're going to be setting up their Christmas trees. They're going to be participating in all of these traditions that um, some of them we, we look at as, as sort of neo-pagan. We look at it as the, the secular Christmas, you know, the, the going out, the hustle and bustle of going out and buying presents, the, the, the Christmas trees, the Christmas lights on the, the front of the houses. And some of it's religious. Um, as I said, you know, we'll, most of us will be putting up nativity scenes. We've been using our uh, Advent wreaths to kind of count down the Sundays of Advent. But all of these practices... 
Um, I think Professor Rachel Brown reminds us that, um, or Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, I think she reminds us that we're not just doing these, we're participating in these. And, and the difference between participation and doing is, I think, that disposition towards allowing these things to infiltrate us and allowing our participation to communicate these things to other people. You know, and I, I think the timing of this is actually perfect in the fact that, you know, we have been, you know, we've just now started a new liturgical year. And, you know, the... the the look at practices, the look at the things we do week in and week out as Catholics, looking at the liturgy throughout the year, it's going to, if, if we take a different view of it, if we go back and take a look, like we were talking about the monastic practices, talking about the medieval uh, approach to, to worship and, and to, to religion in, in and of itself, going back, you know, if, if we were to take this new year this new liturgical year, and not just look at it Christmas from the with these new glasses that we've been given, but let's take take a look at the entire liturgical year. Think what Lent could be. Think what the you know ordinary time we generally get bogged down in. But think of all the you know if we take a new look, or I guess it's more like taking an old look at liturgy and at worship and those types of things throughout ordinary time. It could take on a whole new meaning for us. Yeah, and not just the liturgical year, but I think week in, week out, daily, taking those liturgical practices that I think for some of us have gotten maybe a little stale. For you know, for some of us, you know, we, we go through the motions of of sort of reading the words and saying the words, but recognizing that when we go to Mass, when we go to the liturgy of the Eucharist, the word liturgy means the acts of the church. This is the action of the church. This is what we are doing to transform the world. Our participation there at Mass isn't just about singing the songs and saying the prayers. Our participation in Mass is really about bringing Christ truly present first through the Eucharist, and then through our own participation in that, our own participation in the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ for us personally, when we receive that Eucharist, we bring that not only to ourselves, but we bring that alive to the whole world just by our active participation and actively being there and doing what's being done at the liturgy. And if we can take that to the whole world, we can transform the world daily, step by step, throughout the course of the next year. You know, we have the real presence of Christ in the blood, in the bread, in the wine. But what we also need to contribute is our real presence. We need to be there. We need to be participatory in this and making sure that, you know, we can be a part of the Mass, be a part of the Eucharist, be a part of the body of Christ. You know, and with that, we're going to wrap up the cave for this week. This is the, the week, final week before Christmas. We'd like to... Uh, on behalf of the cavemen, Timothy O'Donnell, myself, Mark Tuttle, and all the staff here at Catholic Radio Indy, we hope you have a very blessed Christmas and a wonderful Christmas season. God bless and take care. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. 
Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.